You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today, Jeff German of Hands 2 and Big Body Parts, Domain Poetique. Hey, Jeff. Hello. Thanks for coming on to talk to us. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. We're really excited. We, of course, did an episode with Stefan on the Dikesh tape a few months back, but it's exciting to actually get to have you on to talk to you. Now, Tara, before we hopped on, she said she had a question immediately about the titles. Well, I was wondering if there is a correct pronunciation for your titles or and an incorrect way or, you know, is there a little wiggle room on how we say there's, things? <laughs> there's a lot of wiggle room. There's the way I pronounce it and and that doesn't mean it's the correct way. It's just uh, sort of based on where the where the word comes from. There are usually two words squashed together. So well, that's good to hear. We're frequently arguing over pronunciation. And- just in oh. general. <laughs> I mean, just in general, I, and all words are hard. Yeah, I knows? feel are a struggle to pronounce in some way. Your m- created words pose problems for my brain, but I enjoy that. <laughs> when did you have that idea to create words for your titles? Uh, early on. I think the first very first hands to tape the title was just a bunch of letters i found on a a typewritten page where i put paper in the typewriter and then just like tried to play it like a drum mm. pretending that the different letters had different you know different pitches although they don't and then i just took the paper home and was looking at it later and said oh there's a really messed up word i'll use that one for a title kajfa <laughs> which I don't know if that's how it would be pronounced in any language. If there is a language that that word belongs to, probably not. Um, so yeah, they're just uh, maybe that's part of the fun of it is not knowing how to what to call it. Like uh, I think so. People always say hands too, and and I think I've been I started thinking a couple of years ago that it's actually pronounced hands too. The emphasis the on emphasis. the first word and not the second word, and, and it changes the meaning slightly. Although it's because it comes from the phrase "hands," uh, I turn my hands to the task, which is sort of like an old, old timey way of talking about things. I love that. <laughs> well, you incorporated more of that uh, that saying in the the title "hands to turn my hands to," right? Right. Right. <laughs> Which was funny because uh, when someone reviewed it, they thought the title was uh, Turn My Hands To. Like the, the artist is Hands To and the title is Turn My Hands To. No. My cat. Uh-oh. We just, oh, for, what a treat. Uh, yes. Thank goodness. Listeners, we got to just witness a cat run across the screen. <laughs> and they got to hear it. It was very nice. <laughs> so that was just a little aside no i appreciate it because you know we were of course like checking out your extensive discography before we started talking and i was i was enjoying reading titles to mike and certainly uh your first release was a challenge and fun (laughs) but 
with hands too, or hands too. It's I'll I'll just keep. We'll just probably keep butchering it. <laughs> started, at, least, at least we're consistent. Exactly. <laughs> started or, alongside when you started Big Body Parts. Is that correct? Did did they start at the same time? Was was there a little lapse before the label? Uh, it was pretty much around the same time. Yeah. So I already, um, I had a bunch of other tapes of other bands and things that I was in and I thought, well, why not, you know, start a label, do them all together. <clears throat> that would you know, be like city, house. city of worms. Right. And big Joey. And, um, before that was atrocity exhibition. And I was, uh, there was a band called the mud men. This is like 84, 85. And you mentioned uh, playing the typewriter as if it were drums or percussion instruments. And right. you started out as a drummer playing in bands before sort of doing more experimental works. Right. I was uh, I played in bar bands, cover bands. Because that's what I thought you were supposed to do. I mean, I've always messed around with tape recorders. I started messing around with tape recorders and trying to improvise and stuff in, uh, when I was in high school. Uh, corralling my poor brother into here, get your saxophone. Let's play. <laughs> what do we play? Just make something up. And one of your earliest tapes under your own name is the uh, keep the drum concussion solos. Is that correct? Right. Yes. Two things about that. Actually. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, a friend and I were looking through a William S Burroughs novel and noticed the phrase, keep the drum. Is that where you got the title from? Right. In fact, there's a, there's a quote on the sleeve where there used to be, I think it's on the CD too. It says, uh, he who plays death must keep the drum. Okay. Yeah. That's where it comes from. And you, you had a band called atrocity exhibition. So were Ballard and Burroughs, uh, big influences to your sound work or just in general, in general, and Burroughs more with the sound work Ballard in general. It was like, I, I've, Never really enjoyed science fiction um, writing until I read Ballard. Because he was like in a completely different league, I thought, than people like Heinlein and, and uh, Arthur C. Clarke and those guys. With doing that release under your own name, was there a sort of a divide between the Hands 2 work and things you did under your name? Yeah, it was basically what I used uh, to make the recording some, anything with the, after the first tape, anything that where I used a sampler and had a basic type of sound was hands too. And then keep the drum was me using the concussion setup that was used in blowhole by myself. And I didn't use any samplers. It was all just really lo-fi cassette recordings of playing this junk and it didn't seem to fit into the other, to the hands two universe. So I decided to separate them. Uh, I've since stopped all the dumb name stuff. And just when did you start using name. a sampler instead of just cassette tapes? Were the, were the earliest hands two releases done with a sampler as well? Right. But the very first one was not sampler that starting with the second one, which is uh, do not touch them was when I used the sampler and we had, at that time, City of Worms was uh, happening because George Erickson had 
bought a sampler, one of those Casio samplers, and brought it to rehearsal of um, probably atrocity exhibition. And we started messing around with it and saw what we could do with it. And so Steve Beckner and I both also bought SK-1s and started playing every week uh, in Tom Ray's basement with these samplers. Okay, so the and sampler just, referenced is is a Casio SK one on that right. early material. Yep, a very very rudimentary, cheap like condenser mic to record right. the sound in, and then play adjusting the pitch on it. That's it. That's it. It's a toy, but um, <laughs> it's the thing about it is you can do it live on stage. Which if you had an Ensonic Mirage or something like that, you couldn't quickly sample something and then play it back immediately. Whereas with an SK-1, you could do that. So when City of Worms played live, or even when we recorded, everything was done. Uh, we all played at the same time. There wasn't any overdubbing or anything. It was all just pick your sound and go. Did you change your process or approach much when you were playing in something like City of Worms comparative to doing your solo work? Yeah, you have to listen more. <laughs> right. <laughs> Pay attention to what else is going on, which in the beginning in the beginning we weren't really good at, but we got better at it. So I think the the earlier City of Worms tapes are more chaotic. Listening seems to be a, a very common thread in your work. And I, I noted actually on your website there's a sort of a sound diary from like two thousand, two thousand one where you have a kind of a date and then reference sort of the sounds you heard that day and, and observed. Uh right. is this something you, you were doing before then? If you do you have a history of writing down sort of sounds on different days and keeping a log of these things? Mm, I started it I can't remember what year it was, but that was the the part that's excerpted on the website is probably the beginning of it and i i don't do it much now i wanted to try it a because uh it was something i was like forcing myself to do every day like a discipline and then i um when you if you do that you're writing down what you're hearing as you're hearing it and then you have to separate your um thinking into listening hearing, identifying, writing, trying to figure out how to describe it, and then going back to listening. And you, all that happens really fast, hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I found really interesting and fun to do. Did it uh, serve a function for your work around the time you started doing that? Was it, do you feel like it was helping you create? Probably. I think mostly it was just to, to hone my listening and to recognize the difference between listening and hearing and hearing and identifying. Like there's, there can be times when you hear something, you don't know what it is. And during that, that short period where, where you, where a sound goes in your ear and pops up in your mind and your mind goes, what is that? And starts racing to figure out what it is. I like that period before you've figured out what it is. I think I wrote about that too, although it may not be in the excerpts that are on the website. Yeah, I noticed a, a few things here where in one you said, uh, most of my previous work could be interpreted as being idea-based and most of my work nowadays is sound-based. 
Uh, right. I believe this is due to my growing interest in listening and what happens when one listens and my concomitant disinterest in contextualizing sound. Right. So the early works were uh, sort of field recordings and samples and processing those things, but you moved into like using more organic and found objects for sound creation. What led you to that path and, and sort of what do you see as the difference between those things? Uh, one of the reasons I started doing performances with sticks and stones and pine cones and things is because it, I had been doing all these field recording based hands two tapes. And at one point, someone said to me, well, these are great, but how would you do this live? You know, are you gonna, just going to play tapes back? And I thought, well, you just do the thing that's on the tape, but you do it in the performance space instead of out in the desert or the forest or wherever you are. So that was one reason I started doing that. Plus, I started becoming interested in really quiet stuff. Um, this is when I was living in Seattle. And it was probably around the, the beginnings of the whole lowercase thing. Um, and I don't know. To be honest, I don't know whether that was influencing me or whether it happened concurrently. But me and a number of people had started talking about playing really quiet and staying really quiet just for the partly for the discipline and partly for what it would produce i think idea based is uh where you have a some sort of concept or image before you start playing or recording that you're trying to adhere to or put across or concretize in some way when people are always asking of music what is it about what's the context well it's something to listen to well i found listening really interesting that the things that happened if you tried to not think while you were listening which is really difficult you know but i keep trying to do it <laughs> sort of a meditation yeah it's it's the same thing you're focused on one thing and trying not to be distracted. Yeah, I think it's easy when it's a loud chaos to not overinvest your mind, but when things go still and quiet, that's when I find that my mind and imagination go into overdrive. Right. So, Jeff, what is it about uh, like natural and the found objects that resonates with you for creating these sounds? What what's uh, good about sticks and stones that you couldn't accomplish with something else, or why you've you've gravitated towards those things? And do you have favorites? Uh yeah, I really like driftwood on the um, the northeast coast. Seems to have a really resonant quality. Stuff that's been like waterlogged and then dried out in the sun they all ring like like they have notes i i i think i gravitated toward natural stuff i'm not sure why but other than that's what i had been using up to that point when i made recordings so like the hands two tapes like turn back the sun and not hands on and sakuye <clears throat> were all recorded in at sites where there were uh, Native American ruins. So a lot of it is what was on the site, sticks and stones, broken pottery, 
And I stuck with that for a long time because I really enjoyed the sound. When you get a lot of people together doing that, as we did in the Animus Orchestra, it's sort of a, <clears throat> trying to create a mass of that type of sound. It was quiet. Uh, I don't even know a word to use to describe them. Wrinkly, sort of like, you know, bugs in the underbrush kind of a sound. It lent itself more readily to quiet, uh, quiet playing. It's really hard to be loud with a pine cone. Scrape it on the concrete. <laughs> now I use everything, whatever I can find. And actually, lately, I've been uh, playing a lot of junk and detritus that I find in the desert around town. You're in Arizona now, correct? Right. I'm in Cottonwood, which is like central Arizona. It's right in between the Sonoran Desert and where the forest starts. In fact, there's, there's national forest here, but it's mostly just scrub like some little trees. And then when you go north toward Flagstaff, the elevation rises a thousand feet and then you have pine trees and juniper and all that. But we're sort of in, in the, between that. So you can go get many different items right. depending which direction you head. Access to a variety of landscapes. Right. You had said something interesting going back to the idea of listening and, and paying attention and it was in an interview. And when we do the podcast, especially when we're covering an album, like when we did Dikesh, we sit and listen and focus intently, keep everything off and we take notes and up and forever. I thought I, I'm the most, I am paying the most attention I've ever paid to albums doing this really focused listening in these one sessions. But something you said made me realize that I'm not necessarily totally focused because I'm, I'm also thinking about what I'm going to say about it on the episode. So I'm, I'm still a little bit outside of that pure verbalizing, right? Because I'm also trying to think about, okay, how, how do I want to say this? What do I want to say about this? When, When did it, when did you get to the point where you started really understanding what actually paying attention to sound was? Was this back in the 80s? Did the, was it something that progressed for you? No, I think it was probably closer to when I got to Seattle in the 90s. 96 when I really started paying attention and like after, you know, it's all this stuff sort of snowballed. I stopped calling myself hands too. I, I got interested in really quiet sounds. I started really trying to pay attention. And then when I moved to uh, Cottonwood, I had a few things happen that sort of opened my ears a little bit. I had experiences in the desert that, that, uh, caused me to want to listen more intently and put it that way. It's only difficult to talk about because it's really hard to describe what happened. And I don't know if anyone else, I, I kind of think maybe other people have had a similar experience. I know Francisco Lopez alludes to something happening in interviews and on his website. And I asked him once and he wouldn't talk about it. So know, maybe it's some sort of taboo or, Maybe it doesn't help. (laughs) (laughs) 
in the mid '90s, when you moved to Seattle, you also started uh, sort of performing at these anomalous records uh, concert series, right? Like a uh, sessions. Um, how did those come about, and and how did those inform the sounds you were making? Uh, that was sort of the direct result of blowhole disintegrating. Um, and Eric Lanzalotta just invited Aaron Wintersong and I to go play there every week and invite people. And so that was the impetus was to try and get a bunch of more people to come and play. And not very many did. I think maybe three people over time that I didn't know showed up and wanted to play. Um, there were a bunch of people I did know who would come from time to time. Um, so it was Eric's idea and I was just happy to have a place to play every week because I couldn't do it in my, at that point I couldn't do it in my apartment. And after, after blowhole fell apart, uh, we weren't going over to Patrick's house to play anymore. Was anomalous records a big part of sort of the networking in the nineties for you and, and sort of with big body parts, how did you establish contacts and find people whose music you were re releasing or, or trading with? Well, with big body parts, it was just all, you know, sound choice and option and all the little uh, fact sheet five, all those magazines that came out before the internet happened. It was writing lots of letters, checking out ads, talking to people, going to, um, Playing in Boulder and Denver, I met people who were more, quote unquote, connected to that world. And so I got contacts through them. Um, or I would, you know, I'd take out an ad in a magazine and I'd get a few bites. Um, with Anomalous, I was, I was pretty well, I'd say, connected by the time I got to doing the Anomalous thing. I knew a lot of people and I didn't know a lot of people yet in Seattle, but I had met quite a few and was trying to get on. There was like a weekly or a bi-weekly improvised music series that was put on by one group. And I kept trying to get on uh, their program and eventually did. And then there were other people that I met who would get together weekly at their houses and play. And I did that. And by the time I left Seattle, I was playing either a concert or a house session, probably three times a week, which was a great um, experience for learning how to hone your listening and your responses to what other people are doing. It's just a lot of fun. Just staying in that, practice, that flow yeah. and that practice must have just right. been right. really just con the inspiration mm -hmm. constantly feeding itself. Right. I'm impressed. Is your that you're a drummer? Is your hearing still acute? <laughs> I'm not so sure it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. I. That's a question that I come back to all the time. Like, why are so many of these noise people, for want of a better term at the moment, why do they start out as drummers? Mm -hmm. So many. Like Lawrence English was a drummer. Um, Mersbau. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I've come up with lists in the past. And because I'm on the spot right now, I'm a, uh. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's, a, that's a good question. 
I think maybe it might have to do with paying attention to timbre for one thing and noticing that things sounds change as they decay. Like you hit a cymbal and it rings, it, it changes as the sound decays. Maybe that might be an end to uh, listening. Hey, what's going on there? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, drums are so strangely abstract, you know, and so I'm, I'm sure that has something to do with it. That could be too, yeah. Well, then uh, there also might be the, the reaction against the, you know, the drummer is the dumbest guy in the band. <laughs> right. <laughs> But a very powerful force because the drummer really like you can't go, you can't make a drummer go where they don't want to go. Right. I know that from experience. (laughs) (laughs) And a band is only as good as its drummer. Yeah. There are a lot of, there are a lot of mediocre bands out there because they're mediocre because they have mediocre drummers. They could be a lot better, I think. I don't necessarily mean, you know, known media type bands. I'm just saying like, you know, bar bands, practice bands, that kind of thing. It takes a long time to realize you suck. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us, some of us still haven't learned that lesson. Yeah, some of us still haven't (laughs) learned that lesson. Now, back in the 80s in Colorado, you, you were working with GX a bit. Was he in Colorado then or... Is that and is that how you guys connected? That's how I met him. Yeah, he used to a guy named Paul Dickerson in Denver used to put on shows and was always doing hater shows. I mean, like every couple of months there would be another round of hater shows. They would GX would come through and they would play Denver and Boulder and and uh, eventually I set it up for him to come play in Colorado Springs, which is where I was living. That's how I met him. Like. Um, did a did a show for him at an actual venue, and then took him out to a, the refinery ruins in Manitou Springs, and and filmed he and Paul and a couple of other people trying to knock down a concrete wall with sledgehammers. That was fun. Um, and <laughs> that I awesome. I wish I I wish somebody would put that on YouTube. I think I have the video somewhere. Um, I know I have. Was it ever released on a, a release, or is it just something you've had? Uh, the the video hasn't been released. There's an audio. I think there's an audio recording of it on. Maybe it's not on. There's a record called Tractor. Right. Mm-hmm. I think. I can't remember now without looking at it. Um, which is dumb because I was just looking at it the other day. <laughs> I think part of that recording might be on Tractor, but no, the video's never been released or posted anywhere, as far as I know. There's a photograph of the concert that we did at the venue in the book that Helicopter just put out not too long ago. Fantastic book. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I like how. Uh, Reading the, reading the descriptions of the gigs, they all sort of like jumble together after a while. Oh, they're so great. And I also, I love the gigs where he's counting dust <laughs> and s- mm-hmm. sitting and, and, and looking and, you know, that's the gig for 15 right. minutes. 
I think that's so great. But was was he did was he someone that working with the haters probably had opened up a a lot of contacts as well, I'm sure. Yeah. And and knowing Paul um Dickerson. That and that's the We Never Sleep crew, correct? Right. Um kind of surprised that you know that although i shouldn't be (laughs) um i gx the haters were a really big influence on my sound work early on it was sort of like uh the haters and the new block haters and eric lundy and john hudak that weird conglomeration of those four people and you worked with lundy a lot on yeah. projects and, and on with big body parts. Right. And we brought him was, out to Colorado and he did a gig and yeah. Was Boy Dirt Car something that, that had influenced you or was it more just his solo works? Both. Yeah, I had a friend who was a really avid record collector and she would loan me albums and the first Boy Dirt Car FI split. I really liked the boy dirt car side and then bought winter when it came out. And my friend Robin was like, Oh, well, I've been writing to Lundy. You should, you know, you should get in contact with him. And I eventually did and called him. We talked on the phone for a couple of hours and hit it off. And after that, it was just like, Hey, let's do this. Let's do that. And then he came out to Colorado. We set up a, clandestine show which was videotaped and released and it is on youtube somewhere um and then it just kept going after that because he's one of those people that i feel is greatly underappreciated and he does so much stuff he writes he records he does video and and among each of those categories, he does several different kinds of things as well. Like his writing is, you know, in philosophical tracts, or he writes novels, or he writes, he does these weird uh, broken word things. That's what he calls them, broken word. <laughs> and lately he's been doing a lot of erasing, which I think has to do with uh, trying to remove the self from whatever it is you're doing which is another really which is to me seems concurrent to the listening thing listening and not thinking trying to remove yourself and one of lundy's uh it's not really a saying it's a, i think it's a line from one of his books or poems or something that, that, that self is really only the noise of mind and I really like that idea that it doesn't matter. Wow. It doesn't matter who you think you are. You should like train, not let that enter, enter into things because that's where you get into a lot of problems with other people and interpreting things in certain ways because of your, uh, your upbringing, your predilections. So, yeah. I, I like going off on tangents, I guess. <laughs> I I really like that thought because, you know, 
especially when, when nobody was going anywhere and we were just in this one bedroom apartment, Mike and I in Hollywood, we were listening to so many field recordings and, and really minimal sounds because they really were transportational. And I, and I connected when you said, when you were describing your ineffable experience, because I think sometimes when you're listening, it's not really what you're hearing, but in some way it connects you in a way that you wouldn't expect. So you can't explain it to somebody why the sound of, you know, this pencil tapping evokes such a feeling in you, but it just does. And it doesn't necessarily make sense. But I think that that's, that's something that, that abstract sound does, uh, that, that we really, really appreciate and get hooked on. Right. I think, I think it's the, the act, the concentration does it, not necessarily the, the sound. Like if I, if I'm trying to drown out the rap music at work by playing, uh, Neil's assault group or something, people are like, what, what is that? Is that just noise? Yeah, it's just noise. <laughs> if you really listen to it, like I can remember the first time I heard uh, Organum Tower of Silence or one of those like early, you know, the, the 12 inches that only last like eight minutes on a side. When it's, the sound starts off, it's so harsh that you're kind of, whoa. And then, but if you get over that and just start paying, listening to what's happening, it's really, as you say, transporting, um, which may not be as good a word as I'd like either, but yeah. But so I think it's the, the act of concentrating that does it. Yeah. It feels like you're connecting to something that's outside of yourself. Right. And, and that's, you know, those brief, those momentary instance when you, you do feel connected to another cognizance, another power, another something else, who cares? Another aspect of yourself. It's right. It's the, rest of, the rest of the universe. And then when you start mm-hmm. to realize that your, your insistence on personality and being, being someone sort of hinders you a lot of the time. I think that's what I found out or that's what I discovered or that's the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. Were there uh, recordings that influenced you field recordings and, and object recordings uh, sort of in the noise world and also outside of more traditional type uh, field recording records before you started your own experiments? Mm, yeah, sort of. And people like Bernie Krause, um, who was probably uh, maybe Chris Watson, that kind of stuff. And then I, I really at one point started getting into the like those environments LPs. Oh, classic. Love them. Yeah. Um, and then when there started to be a plethora of. Uh, used record and tape and CD stores around. Like when it was in Seattle, you could very often find those relaxing music tapes that were, if not uh, exclusively, mostly field recordings. I mean, some of them had music and those weren't all that interesting, but the ones that were just, you know, babbling Brook, 
until you realize that it's a loop. And then like, uh, I have a couple of those uh, sleep machines that will play back ambient sound to help you fall asleep. I don't use them for that, but, um, and those are all very short loops. So they very quickly become rhythmic, which is going back the other way, I think, leading you back into personality and, oh, hey, that's kind of grooving. Um, so yeah, stuff like that the environment LPs and weird new agey field recordings and stuff like that. There are some great ones. There's like uh, somebody recorded a, like an hour on a sailboat. And so you can oh, use the, the wood masted ship environments yeah, or a different thing. That might be yeah. it, but there's there's a couple of others too. And now there are like whole channels on YouTube devoted to, you know, 10 hours of engine room noise. Right. <laughs> I think it's great. Um, and then there's, I don't know, God, I can never remember the name of it. There's a website that will let you create your own ambient long playing sounds. And it has um, it has natural sounds and then it also has stuff like tibetan bells or gongs or um there's one that's uh tibetan chant and and it, so it gives you a bunch of sounds and then it shows you a like a mixing disc and you can adjust the levels and the fr the frequency of their repetition and that kind of stuff it's really cool nice i always thought that was like well that's there's a great thing to do with the internet instead of you know just like stirring up the muck <laughs> yeah <laughs> was recontextualizing the recordings that you would gather always your intention because with hands to it's it's never just a document of the recording or at least it's reframed in a in another way whether or not it's the titles, whether or not it's the art, was that always something you had in mind that you were going to gather these sounds and then recontextualize them? Yeah. I think from the, from the start of the sampler thing, that was, that was the case. I mean, the very, like the very first hands two tape, the whole a side is just me and my friend Robin tossing metal around in, inside a big concrete room. So that's just a live performance recording. Um, and then I took a bunch of other tapes and I didn't have a multi-track or anything. So I just played them all together and recorded them on another deck. So it sounds really great. Um, <laughs> I think that I sort of follow my nose a lot. What do I want to, you know, what do I want to do with this stuff? The, what I've done for years and years and years is just collect sounds and then figure out what I'm going to do with them later, whether they're going to be in some like quote unquote piece of music or whether I'll just like listen to them every once in a while and go, well, what a neat sound or what was happening there or trying to figure out uh, some other aspect of it or just listening to it. Although a lot of the time when I record stuff now, it's really short. 
uh, sound. So it doesn't really lend itself to heavy concentration because it's over so fast. Unless you want to sit and keep hitting rewind. It seems for a lot of, especially the earlier stuff that using tape and the artifacts and processing created just by the maybe cheap microphones on the tape recorder and the lack of a multi-track so playing multiple tapes at once in the sort of layers of haste and, and gain was one of those things that you you leaned into and lent sort of heavily to the sound on a lot of those releases was was that an important part of it for you and and taking sort of small smaller sounds at times and and making them just big and, and hazy and obscure. Yeah. Well, I, um, it was in the very beginning, it wasn't intentional, but once I realized that it sounded like bootleg records, which I've always loved, um, I just, I love that messed up sound quality. Um, now I forgot the question. <laughs> just how important tape and and the that sort of uh blown out quality is to your work or your earlier work especially it's all it's all important i think i think that's what it was about which is weird because a lot of people in the beginning uh if i would share it with them they oh it sounds so terrible i'm like it's supposed to sound that way i did it that way on purpose although i you know i don't really have the means to do it any other way um, but if I did, I probably wouldn't. And I've gone into, you know, once I got to Seattle, I had the opportunity to go into studios beyond Sonarchy radio show and stuff like that and, and do it that way. And I almost, pref I, I think I do prefer the messed up noisy versions more because it seems to me that oftentimes I'll have a digital recording of a performance and a cassette recording of the same performance. And the digital recording often sounds like airless or something, like it was recorded in a vacuum. So maybe my ear is just so attuned to all the noise that tape traveling over a tape head makes that I, I like that more than I like, like pristine digital clean recordings. And, the, you know, it's the thing I don't like the thing I dislike the most about digital is it's so hard to make it do stuff it's not supposed to do. Whereas with a with a tape recorder, you can endlessly manipulate it physically, and it'll change the sound. Digital won't do that. It just it just stops working. You know, you can turn it up really loud so it's distorted, and digital distortion is really harsh. Um, but I have yet to find ways of messing with it physically that will alter the sound and i know there are people who do that with cds like cutting cds and reassembling them or putting little holes in them or something like that but to do it with an actual recording as you're recording is really difficult what sort of equipment and techniques are you using to capture these sounds right now i have a panasonic um cassette recorder that's probably 30 years old Actually, I have a whole drawer full of cassette recorders that are in various states of not working. Um, so I'll use them for certain things, like one that will eat whatever tape you put into it. But before it does that, it will record a short segment of 
So I will use that if I want that sound. That sound in concert with a specific other sound. If I want a conversation that's all messed up, I could use that tape. Uh, or the the one I use the most, my Panasonic, you can shake it, and it causes the t the the uh, capstan and the take up reel to work against each other in a rhythmic sort of group group group. I'll do that a lot. Sometimes I use a um, I have a piece a Sony PCM digital recorder. If I'm going for something really clean, I'll use that. But otherwise, I just use whatever uh, cassette recorder I have with me. I usually bring two if I go out into the desert to record. One's mono and one's stereo. And now the stereo one has developed this odd uh, glitch where it records the sound of its own motor and it has a very rhythmic sort of. But it's a really interesting sound. And I've used that itself, just like put a tape in the deck and turn it up all the way and record itself. And then I've used that in several places. Um, and I tried using outboard microphones. Sometimes I, I will do that and sometimes I won't, but you have to be really careful um, what you record with it if you don't want certain kinds of sounds. It's very easy to completely overwhelm a cheap tape recorder mic <clears throat> and then get nothing but like you know the uh wind on the diaphragm kind of kind of sound mm -hmm. i've also seen you use uh maybe sort of contact mics or other types of small microphones to record some of these objects yeah i've done that in the beginning i made my own <clears throat> from piezo discs that i bought at uh electronic supply places and then i um, a couple of years ago, I bought one from Crank Sturgeon, which is a really great contact mic, but it has a very short lead. So unless you use a, an extender, you have to watch your volume or you get like ear splitting feedback. <laughs> um, I, I will sometimes manipulate things using Ebos. Like, uh, um, street sweeper brush bristles I find on the side of the road all the time. I rarely see street sweepers, but I see the evidence of them having swept the street. <laughs> They've been there. <laughs> yeah. So I use those. I have like piles of them. And I'll sometimes use those for a sound to record. Um, yeah, I used to use contact mics quite a bit. In fact, I did a whole series of tapes where I went out. I had to record a whole tape every month for a year. So I would go and find one thing and do 30 minutes of that. And then the next week or whatever, I'd go out and do the other side. And I used to contact mics a lot for those tapes, like uh, clipping them to bushes or fences or whatever um, pieces of found metal, old buried cars, you know, something that the wind is causing plants to move against it or something like that. And I would generally, if I use a contact mic, it's because I want to capture what's happening. I don't, I tend not to interact with. Okay. 
I also saw a, uh, a photo of you using a, a low frequency recorder out in the desert, I believe. LF, yeah. And uh, what what is that from? And did you, did you build that, or where did you acquire that? And what is it? What do you use it for? I bought it from Stephen McGreevy. He used I don't know if he still does it. He used to have a website where you could order them. He would build you one for like a hundred bucks. Um, it's used to pick up sounds in the ionosphere. Um, generally what it picks up is lightning strikes from really far away up to really close, um, which sound like crackle. I'm sure you've heard, um, Alvin Lucier has a piece called spherics, which is him using a VLF recorder. And that's the sound. He's like this electric sounding crackle. Hmm. But you get other sounds as well. Weird swooshing sounds and odd pings. And then there are these things called whistlers, which is um, when the the energy from a lightning strike gets caught in the, the between the surface of the earth and the upper atmosphere, it bounces around. And it causes this whistle, this descending, a whistle that descends in pitch. And those um, don't happen everywhere. Like, you have to get away from the power grid to use it and not hear 60-cycle hum the whole time you're using it. Um, So there are places up north where I can get pretty far from the power grid, up in Monument Valley um other places in the desert you just have to go uh, really far and then the best times to record are like you know between probably three and six in the morning have you gone and and done that around those times yeah i haven't done it that early i've been out like 5 Mm a.m in Monument Valley, and I got some uh, recording, really great recording of Whistlers, and it's actually on a CDR that I put out this year called Sound From Films. What were Hands 2 gigs like and performances back in the 80s, and then compared to what you do live currently, or well, at least in the modern era? It was me with a sampler and a couple of tape decks and an amplifier. And I would oftentimes try to replicate pieces that were on tapes. Oh, okay. So I actually did, you know, like there's a piece, Do Not Touch Them. I actually played that live somewhere. Oh, cool. One of the Body Sounds tapes is a live gig that I did at at steak night at Colorado College. So I set up in the dining room. And did hands too with the sampler and the tapes and it was all body sounds. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> Appropriate for steak night. Yeah, it, they didn't think so, but very meaty. <laughs> they, they were, it wasn't wasn't necessarily the uh, the appetizer that everyone was hoping for. Yeah. Right. Don't want to hear well, sounds of borborygmi while you're chewing your steak. <laughs> and how often were you doing shows? Um, not that often. I think I could probably maybe a dozen all told before I left for Seattle. Okay. So really not that many. 
No. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure I have recordings of all of them. So oh, wow. it may not even be that many. It might be more like half a dozen, you know, six or eight, something like that. I have to I'd have to sit down and count. So I you did. seem like you're good at retaining tape. <laughs> yeah. I have a whole wall full of them. Wow. I like tape because it doesn't it doesn't disintegrate as fast as like I've got CDRs that won't play anymore that are only oh, yeah. 10 years old. Right. But I have tapes that are 45 years old that still play fine. And they're maybe a little worse for wear. They have a few worn spots or whatnot, but they still play. My mom sent me a tape a couple of years ago. That was a tape letter that we had sent to my father when he was in Vietnam and he had recorded his part and sent it back. And she wanted to me to make a CDR of it for her. And the tape was stuck. It would not turn. So I had to go in and very gingerly extricate it from the reel, which I did. And it still played. And it sounded great. Wow. So that's, that's awesome. why. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that I understand how tape works a lot better than how digital stuff works as far as what happens to the sound once it goes into the microphone. And, I, and as I said before, I like that you can manipulate it easily. So the earlier hands to shows sampler cassettes moving into more recent times. What is your approach to live shows? I'm kind of going, I'm almost full circle. I don't use, I still don't have a sampler. Um, although I've thought about getting one just for fun and they're too expensive now and you never know what you're going to get, whether it's going to work, whether all the things that you want mm -hmm. to work on it are going to work properly. Um, I uh, recently have started using contact mics and amplification and even sometimes tapes or CDRs when I play live so that I make little, I don't know what to call them, so like micro environments, which include playback devices and live playing. Or uh, one thing I used a lot pre-COVID was uh, a vat full of vinegar and then I would put uh, limestone in it, which dissolves in vinegar and have a contact mic in the vinegar and then amplify that. I would use that as sort of like part of the uh, micro environment for a performance. It's great because you never know exactly what you're going to get. Sometimes it just crackles and fizzes. Sometimes you get these really weird ringing, pitchy sounds and howls and squeaks and like like there's an animal and they're dying or something. It's really cool. Yeah, I'm dying to try this now. That sounds, I, I would I, love to see that. I, limestone's so fascinating because I've read that it's slightly uh, radioactive. Right. So. Let's dissolve it in something. Love to hear that. <laughs> Do you miss playing live? Are you looking forward to playing live again? Have you? Kind of and kind of not. 
Yeah, I, I think that's the I think that's the consensus with a lot of people. I know we're we're kind of feel that way as well. Like, yeah, I don't know. I've been really enjoying recording at home. Don't know about it's doing stepping again out live. It's just it just feels it just feels different. Right. And it's like I've always had a problem with the the stuff around playing live, the travel and everything. And the older I get, the less I like it. Flying in particular and the whole airport do do Oh, yeah. Not fun. No. Um, yeah. I mean, I think Derek Bailey answered somebody once about about whether he liked playing or not. And he very succinctly explained why it was so messed up. And, you know, he was like 70 something at the time, I think. And he was like, I'm an old man. I don't want to be sitting on planes for hours and hours and waiting around for hours and hours. And no. <clears throat> um, I don't know if I, if I was invited to play down in Phoenix or something, I would probably go do it. I don't know about touring ever again or you know i would definitely go up to seattle and play but that's also because i know a lot of people up there and i get to see all my friends and it would be more than just a gig it would be hanging out at people's houses and playing music right. and you know talking with people who i don't have to explain things to which is which is the best right very short supply here you toured with tim barnes though right you actually did a tour with him right i we did many tours yeah yeah and so you going with someone else probably helps the momentum of actually touring oh yeah it helped a lot having like someone a someone who knew the art the itinerary better than i did because he had all the paperwork um and you know to share the experience and and uh, tim knows a lot of people like everywhere we went he knew people personally which i found flabbergasting <laughs> but there were there were a few like the gig in den Haag. um in the netherlands there were people that i had been had written to in the 80s Peter Zinkin and a couple of other people came up. Oh, I'm so and so. We used to trade tapes. Oh wow! Oh, that that that's must have been cool. cool. Yeah, it was really great. And that's uh, how I met Oscar, who put out the Bray Harp record, the uh, White Centipede Noise guy. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. And how I met, you know, how we got to play with Faust, which. I hadn't known about previously. He's like, oh, yeah, well, now we have a day off. We're going to go hang out with Jean Hervé. Who's that? And, oh, you know, the bass player for Faust. Really? Wow. No, I didn't so cool. Faust in Berlin. What? You didn't tell me this. <laughs> so, yeah, it's Tim, we toured the States, I think, three or four times. And then we did the one really insane European tour. With like three weeks. Yeah. Or three and a half weeks. It was just stupid. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do a stupid mock. tour once. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. I recommend it to anybody, especially if you have a good friend, you know, if you're not like fighting with your bandmates or whatever. Yeah. Um, it, it certainly helps. Yeah. I read a quote where you said you've recently been working with sounds derived from mistakes or malfunctions and focusing on discarded, unwanted, and unused bits of past works. So right. how much recycling of, of sounds goes on in what you create? Quite a bit. Uh, I did a whole, a whole disc of that kind of stuff, and I went through, man, I don't think I went through every field recording tape that I had kept, but I went through a lot of them and just pulled out all the tape glitches and, and used the, I, I did it on a computer. So I just take all the glitches and load them into audacity or whatever, and decide what you're going to do with them, how they're going to line up, whether you want to repeat them or process them or, you know, manipulate them in some way, how they're going to group them um, together. You know, when you just, you could just string them all together and 30 minutes of, of fucked up tape stuff. But I, and I've done that, but for that disc, um, I was grouping them into sounds like when you use this horrendous tape hiss and this glitch recurring blah 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 you know just like well that sounds nice we'll do that <clears throat> and i don't i don't necessarily remember where the glitches are so i just have to sit and listen to the whole tape and <laughs> pull them out sometimes i have marks on the tape you know massive malfunction or something <laughs> It's easy to find, but otherwise I have to sit and listen to the whole 60, 90 minute tape to find the stuff. That's a good tape title. That's Massive a, malfunction. That, that is a <laughs> heavy process too. Yeah, it really is. That's an investment. Yeah. It takes a lot of time. Well, I don't, I'm not on Facebook, so I have a lot of time, I guess. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Stay away from that. And it's amazing how much you can accomplish. Within right. that same quote, you also reference uh, crude sound making devices that you've built. Can you elaborate on those? Yeah, I have these. Um, one is a, a box that has a vibrating motor in it. So this is a little plastic box, which has a, a tiny motor, about maybe less than an inch long, a little cylinder. And the, the, uh, well, it's it has a weight on it, so that when it when the motor spins, it's off balance, and it creates a vibration. And I set that inside a little box with a battery with, with a switch on it. You just turn it on, and it starts vibrating. And if it's on the floor, it will move along the floor. Um, or you can use it to um, vibrate. So, like I use it to vibrate drum heads sometimes. Um, if you you have to find the right place to put it. But once you find the sweet spot, you get this really nice low-end drone without too much of the sound of the, the motor itself. I've built a couple of those. I've also built uh, turntables that have stuff affixed to them. And then they would have um, armatures glued above the turntable. So you have, you have arms 
over the turntable with stuff hanging down on them. And as the turntable turns with the stuff on it, they they hit the stuff that's hanging down the armatures. And it's really crude um, sound making device. And it's fairly repetitious unless you have a lot of stuff. Like I, I, I made three of them. One has bones on the turntable and hanging from the armatures. And another one has stones. And then the third one has uh, pieces of wood hanging from the armature and stones on the turntable. And none of them work anymore. Is, did the <laughs> cat get a hold of them? No. <laughs> no, I don't let the cats in my studio. Okay. <laughs> that would be disastrous. Um, they just stopped working. They're really old turntables. And I once I get what I want out of something, I, I after a while, I... Stop using it. I'm probably going to trash them now. There is, I think there's video somewhere and there's lots of pictures of them. Well, you should record trashing them. Oh, <laughs> I, yeah. I do that sometimes too. Like when I discard old tape decks, I don't just discard them, I destroy them and I usually record it. Lance and I did that to GX by record. We had a a tape of him speaking and we put it into a tape deck and went up on the roof of our apartment building and threw it off while it was playing and had another tape deck in the parking lot recording the results. Oh, awesome. so you, I love you that. Hear, like, his voice, you know, sort of, and he gets louder and louder. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that tape I don't have anymore. I don't know what happened uh, to it. No. It was called Destroying the Haters. Oh, man. Oh, okay. Oh, I love we got to find this. Well, you reminded me. I love the way that bones sound. So I actually have a Ziploc baggie of bones next to us <laughs> from where we were recording earlier. It's true. <laughs> yep. Bones are fantastic to use. <laughs> they make nice sounds. Lightweight. Right. I haven't used mine. I just got a new phone. I haven't used it to record anything yet. But well. I do... Uh, I have a friend, my friend Dave Knott in Seattle. We we play together over the phone. And oh. then, yeah, like I'll, he'll call me and, are you ready? Yeah, okay, let's go. And we count down and then he'll record his side of the conversation or the playing and I'll record mine. Mm -hmm. And then one of us will send the other the tape and we I try and mix them together, which is impossible. <laughs> but I bet it produces some really cool results. It does. It's sort of That's amazing awesome. because they will, the, the recordings will line up and then they won't. And then they will again, they, like they'll line up in certain huh. spots, but other, and it's, I, I racked my brain trying to figure out why this happens. And I think it has to do with the time lapse between a sound being made and it being transmitted over the phone. Although it's very, right. very infinitesimal. There is a lapse. And then the, the differences in tape speeds, mm -hmm. the differences in um, whether, like, how it gets digitized, because I'll, I'll t take both tapes and put them into Audacity. And if he's, um, he uses a digital device to record, I think, and then he sends me a file and I use a tape deck. So the so he's got I've got more samples than he does in the recording 
So my mind is always longer than his. <laughs> and so you have all these variables which make it impossible to sync them together. I never even thought about that. But yeah, even even two tape decks would be completely unreliable for timing, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Hey, how come your tape's 20 minutes and mine's 21.30? Yeah. You know, we're using the same tapes from the same manufacturer, like this batch of tapes that, that we bought years ago. Because we were going to put out an album, but it was going to be an album in an edition of 100 copies, each one different. <laughs> so they all have the same cover and the same title, but they're all different recordings. And I think we're up to like, we're halfway there. Oh, wow. Whoa. That's great. See, you don't have time to play shows. You got to no. get on this. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, as we do... We got to let the people know what's coming out, what's out now. What do you have for everyone to dig into the world of Jeff German and Hands 2 and the related world? What is what's happening now? Right now, I'm waiting to get copies of a, a German Barnes Nordval LP that was released on a Russian label. Um. When we toured Europe, Tim and I made a recording at a studio in Gothenburg. With Joachim? With Joachim, yes. And he always said he was going to put it out. And it has finally come out on a, a label called Stellage. Um, and copies of it are on their way to me. And I, I might be the only person you can get them from at this point. Great. Um so I haven't asked. I'll, when I get them, I'll ask Victor if he's sent copies to any other distributors in the U.S. There's a, in fact, my email always has a signature at the bottom, and that always has the most current things that are available. So, which is like the Yes Well tape, which is the Dave Nod and I over the phone. Um, we made a copy of one of those sessions and and duplicated it. So there's an actual Yes. That's the band name, the Yes Well. <clears throat> There's an actual record that's uh, the same thing instead of 100 copies of you know, different things. Um, there's a tape called Debitage on Unread. Um, there are, there's a tape on Grisale. I don't know. It's probably not how you pronounce it. Both of those labels have Bandcamp uh, pages. And all this information is in my email signature. So if you email me, you can get all of this really easily. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. There is a book supposedly to be, not supposedly, it's going to be published sometime in the future. I don't know the time frame. Uh, Errant Bodies Press. I hope I'm getting that correct. Um, Brandon LaBelle is helping put out this um, book of an interview between me and Aram Yardumian. He did an interview with me on um, Times Quotidian years ago. And then he we expanded it. He asked me a bunch more niggling questions and we're turning it into a book to be very informative. Awesome. Who cares at all about what I was doing before now. 
including uh, pictures of me and my friends as uh, 20-somethings pretending to be rock stars. Well, we are definitely excited for that. That sounds Sold. great. And, of um, course, there's the uh, collaboration with Aaron Dillaway that's relatively I, recent. Yeah, that just came out. The Domain Poetique box set. There's yep. um, Stefan is also now working on a Hands 2 box set, which will be all the Body Sounds tapes. So it's just there's a plethora of stuff to get. There's also a lot of stuff up on Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot of those early tapes are up, available on Bandcamp. So we'll have right. a lot of links. And what is your email for people to email you if they want to pick stuff up directly from you? It's as animist a z a n i m i s t uh, as sort of uh, Arizona animist a z animist at hotmail. Um, we'll, we'll have, we'll have that link up on mm-hmm. the show page. So if anyone wants to get stuff directly from Jeff, please shoot him an email. Cool. Um, and you can, most of the time anomalous has whatever my newest thing is. He doesn't usually have a lot of copies of it, but you can look there if that's what you're into doing. Uh, I send some stuff to art into life in Japan. In fact, I just sent him a big box recently. Cool. Great. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you. This was this is wonderful. This yeah. was really, really yes. cool. Really great to get to know more about your history and also what you're up to now and just discussing all this great stuff. Your thoughts behind field yes. recording, collecting sounds. This was just so your love affair with tape. Yeah, yeah. This is <laughs> awesome. really, really cool. Looking forward to that book. That sounds great. Yeah. I, I'm really excited for that. That sounds, we actually were just looking at a Brandon LaBelle lathe on MSBR records. Oh, uh, yeah. Last, last week when we were with Eric Hoffman uh, over at his place. So we went through his. We're just coveting. It was like yes. covet fest where we, were... we just looked at all his really, like yeah, his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really cool. So no, that'll be, that'll be really great. We'll be looking there's, forward to that. There's also a movie. Actually, there are two movies, but one you can't access anywhere. If you go on Vimeo and uh, search for German Barnes or Tim Barnes, Jeff German, or The Fingered Remove, which is what the movie's called, there's a short uh, documentary about Tim and I playing at this festival in Austin and made by this guy named Patrick Dance. It's a really great movie. It's really funny and uh, beautiful to look at and shows us um, improvising in a lot of different situations. Really cool. The other movie oh, cool. was made by a, by a Polish director named Jacek Blauet, whose father is also a documentary filmmaker. Um, but it has, it has not, and I don't know if it ever will be released anywhere. So he used to be able to watch it on Vimeo, but he took it down. Um, uh, my internet connection is unstable. All right. I just oh, got oh, no. See, you know what? perfect timing. Perfectly. Right. The sun I think is setting. I think the uh, an unstable connection is a perfect way to end <laughs> our conversation with Jeff German. There's destabilizing no better way. the connection. This is great, but we're going to have links for a lot of stuff up. That video sounds great. I've never seen that, so we'll definitely have links up for that. So 
This was so fantastic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And Thank you. Hopefully someday, maybe we'll come out to the desert and collect sounds with you in person. That would be a hell of a lot of fun. Great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Awesome. Cool. All, right. All right. Well, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks.